Hi, my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. Hello, my name is Liz Crow. And I'm Jesse Spur. Welcome to another episode of Five Things Nursing. And today we're going to be joined by Dr. Andrea Taylor, who is the nurse manager researcher for the surgical and perioperative here at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you. Hello. Quite a mouthful. <laughs> no, it's not the longest title we've no, had, and not. I'm sure it won't be in the future. <laughs> um, we would love to get a little bit uh, of a backstory on you. What What's led you to here? Well, it's quite um, a long story, but I'll try and keep it short and sweet for your listeners. Um, So I came to the Royal having uh, worked at the Sunshine Coast, actually, and and I guess my foundation is a passion for the older adult. Um, And I'd been working with the older adult for a very long time in a variety of settings, you know, community and inpatient settings. Um, and an opportunity came up to work in the emergency department with the older person and setting up a model of care specific to, um, yeah, that population group. Um, if you fast forward a couple of years, uh, we not only, well, researched and looked up what that model of care might look like um, and uh, we got wrapped up into doing our PhDs, myself and a fellow physician in the emergency department. Um, and during that time, Queensland Health became quite interested in the model of care we were devising, I suppose, uh, and the Healthcare Improvement Unit. Uh, unbeknownst to us, they were listening to us in all sorts of forums that we were presenting at. Um, and before long, um, the minister at the time, health minister at the time, announced uh, $20 million uh, funding, recurrent funding for the older adult. And through a variety of extra forums and voting and whatnot, we were actually granted, or as, as well as three other programs, some of that funding. So the program was called Geriatric Emergency Department Intervention, JEDI. Um, great and acronym. Great acronym. <laughs> Had a kind of uh, a catchy appeal uh, with a Star Wars theme. And uh, it eventually was disseminated to 26 emergency departments in Queensland. So that was uh, sort of my foundation for the older person in a different setting. And by the end of all of that, I'd finished my PhD and thought, well, what next? And an opportunity arose here at the Royal Brisbane to then uh, shift my attention for the older adult into surgery. So I've been in this role now for two years and we're looking to devise, I guess, well, uh, older adults isn't my only thing that I do with surgical, but um, it's certainly a big passion of the managers in the division. So we're looking to how we can um, improve care and outcomes of the older adult who uh, undergo surgery here at the Royal. Who are a very large number of our population across the globe, aren't they? As it turns out, yes, that was why we did it in the emergency department and why it's important really in every setting. 
um, because, you know, people are living longer and uh, they're older and frailer. And, and in, of course, Western countries, we have a big bubble post-war and beyond baby baby boom that's coming through. So it's really important to um, look at this emerging and big demographic. Fantastic. So we're going to talk about frailty and I love that your number one is what is frailty because, you know, it's a term that's tossed around but I imagine it has a proper definition. It does have a proper definition um, and uh, this is why it makes it a little bit hard because the World Health Organisation actually hasn't attached a proper formal definition to it yet mm-hmm. because it's quite a nebulous concept uh, that has a couple of uh, schools of thought, I suppose. But I will tell you what the proper, uh, not definition, but it's because it's changed slightly, but this is the, this is the basic principle of what yep. it is. Um, It's an ageing process in which multiple body systems gradually lose their built-in reserves or their ability to repair themselves to maintain homeostasis. And the important thing is it's not attached to age. So someone can be actually frail but quite younger in years. It Mm -hmm. just depends um, how their body copes to repair after they hit, I guess, a little blip in their health status and whether they can get back to their usual level of function. So there's also two types of frailty schools of thought. Uh, this is getting the little bit of the technical side of things again. There's a phenotypic approach um, and there's a defi- deficit accumulation approach. The phenotypic approach operationalizes frailty um, as a biological syndrome, um, whereas the deficit accumulation approach sees frailty as a multidimensional risk state. Um, And so it started to uh, become, I think, a a term since about the late 1970s and it really started to take off as definitions more so in about the late uh, 80s and early 90s. So that's pretty much what frailty is. So think of it as, um, I guess, a state where multiple body organs might be changing over time. Essentially, we think of it as almost wearing out but it's your body's ability to be able to get back to where you were uh, in your normal stasis um, approach. So that's pretty much where we are with frailty. The key kind of principle that I'm picking up there is it's a chronic state. So the, the whole point is the disrepair of uh, fr- to be classified as frailty rather than just loss of function. Correct. Yep. That's right. A young body has the ability to repair and get back to its normal homeostasis. So, for example, uh, whilst you may lose some muscle mass whilst you're li- lying in that in the bed uh, for all that period of time, once you get your um, legs back and you can upright and you start walking again, you'll re- rebuild some of that um, muscle that you've lost. The older adult finds it so much harder to do that. Um, they call it sarcopenia, which is muscle loss in the older adult when you basically are immobile for a long period of time or not actually not even a long period of time. Older adults lose muscle mass, mass, muscle mass much quicker than the younger person. So, and they also have other confounding uh, things that can go wrong, things like cognitive impairment, poor nutrition. So, there's a, there's a culmination. I think that's really what the definition is trying to say. It's multidimensional. There's many things that can go wrong with the older adult that we don't see in that younger population that can bounce back. They have more resilience than the older adult. So, your number two is what does frailty look like? Yes, so that's a really interesting one because it's um, not always something that's entirely evident on face value and sometimes you need to do a bit of investigation and 
uh, prodding, you know, to find out whether someone is frail. But if we're to go back to our formal definitions and look um, as to what they decided in the research um, that frailty looks like, in the phenotypical um, model, frailty is characterised by unintentional weight loss, self-reported exhaustion, weakness, slow walking speed and low physical activity. So, but according to the cumulative deficit model, frail people accumulate more conditions or symptoms associated with frailty. So, basically what we're saying is the more that individuals have wrong with them, the more likely they are to be frail. So, um, it also has been associated with some social determinants of health, such as um, uh, poverty, uh, living alone, um, ethnicity, chronic illness and some environmental factors. So, for example, to use an extreme example, someone living on the street and homeless would not have the same risk exposure to someone living, you know, in a, in a home, for example. Um, and the other thing uh, that I, I think is worth mentioning is that it's increasing in prevalence. So, they say uh, over the age of 85, one in four people actually have um, frailty syndromes um, in their lives. Yes. Is it increasing because we're just getting older? Exactly. Yes. We have more older people. I mean, if we're to go back in time to, say, the 1960s and 70s, uh, there was a saying with older people or just society in general, three scores and ten was the mm-hmm. average, you know, length of your lifespan if you were doing well to get. So, three scores was 20, 40, 60 and an extra 10, 70 years was your average, you know, length of length time that you'd be on this earth. But now we're looking at, you know, 85 and, you know, around the 85 mark. So things have changed in a very short period of time. Um, and that's hence we're finding all these other things that are coming along. It, it my, It's mind-blowing to me that the age of retirement used to be 55. Yes. Um, most of us, our parents retired at 55, as did mine. And uh, I think, wow, that certainly has changed. Yeah. You know. I'd love to be retiring in 14 years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to say how close that I would be to retirement. So can I ask, if I'm on the ward, I'm a bedside nurse, what, what sort of things am I looking for? Yeah, that's a good question because that's the real pragmatic um, side of things. So for a nurse looking at someone or a clinician, looking at someone coming at them walking down the ward, um, as you can see, the, it, it makes sense some of the, the theoretical foundations of the definition, you know, slow walking speed, they're tired, they've got weight loss. I think those things would resonate with a nurse. You know, they see someone that perhaps needs a walking aid, they've visibly got some, um, they've had some weight loss and you can see that they're They've got some bones showing, for example, um, and they just look fatigued. So I think the frail older adult um, is, is you know, more obvious than um, someone obviously that's upright that looks a lot more um, robust in their posture. But there's also, we're going to talk about this a bit further down, but some scales that have been, um, class- have that classification built into them. So that helps the clinician to have a, you know, on a first basis um, glance as to whether someone looks to be frail or not. How much is frailty really to do with kind of muscle capacity and, um, you know, because I've noticed that you haven't said that frailty includes hearing loss or eyesight. Um, Is it really about kind of your structural body? No, that's not. No, absolutely not. But it is a combination of uh, – so sensory loss is definitely part of the uh, frailty profile, I suppose, um, as well as cognition. 
So, because uh, obviously someone that has some cognitive impairment may not recognise or be able have the resilience to be able to, you know, uh, know that they're losing weight and 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 ways to to go about maintaining their body mass, or perhaps do their exercises to make sure that they don't lose their muscle mass. So, the cognition plays a very big part in um, frailty as well. I think picking up on the um, the hearing and sight loss, the loss is the factor in that. So it's a decline rather than initial state. So someone who is blind from birth or from childhood, someone who is deaf from birth or from childhood, is does not necessarily mean they're frail. No. Um, but if they've had a sensory loss that's irreversible, then that, that contributes to frailty. Yes. Uh, which I think is a pretty important working point on a lot of what we're talking about. It's not just the comorbidity, but it's the decline and irreversibility yeah, of that but it's never coming back, like yeah. once you've yeah. got it. And as we've said, and it's an accumulative effect. So if you add those, those factors in addition to the other things that we've talked about and you make them a package deal and then you add an insult, for example, coming to hospital with an injury – let's put a urinary tract infection or something laid on the top of that, that's when things start to get quite complicated and difficult to um, reverse. And could be the potential, which we're going to lead into, but that could be the potential difference between someone going home with some supports to needing then having another stepwise decline to needing to go to a nursing home. Exactly. Or even staying in hospital for a long time. So we might see them in the emergency department, they go to the wards and uh, and next thing they're staying for weeks on weeks trying to get back to where they were before. So I guess what I'm thinking about is like, you know, we've got an elderly person who's living independently, who's come into the ward actually looking okay. But then after a duration of stay in with us, we're starting to notice that they're less steady on their feet. They've lost a lot of their muscle tone. Uh, the cognition is not where it's been prior to coming in. Uh, they are regularly becoming confused. So a patient can sort of come in looking robust, but during the duration of an inpatient stay could actually fall into a category of frailty. Yes, that's true. Uh, particularly if they were pre-frail before they came in and they're just starting to be on the edge of things, um, you know, starting to deteriorate. And definitely one of the hospital stay is one of those really tipping points in their lives. And we find, uh, and in the research as well, that individuals who are that in that pre-frail frail or even frail state, they come to hospital, is an absolute, um, it, it catapults them into that real frail, getting them, once they've discharged out of the hospital and trying to regain all of that lost, uh, you know, endurance that they had uh, prior to coming into hospital is a real struggle. And families will often tell you that once someone comes to hospital yeah. and they're frail, it's fair, they never get them back to where they were before. Yeah. It's terrifying, isn't it? My parents are getting older, so they're um, 80 and 81. And uh, Dad's probably got many years disease and has had a, an acute episode on um, Monday and nearly fell. And I said to my brothers, you know, it can just take a fall, can't it? Because he, he probably is in that pre-frail kind of classification. Absolutely. It can just be one small thing like a fall um, and it can set off a cascade of events that um, lead to something not so desirable, yeah. unfortunately. That leads us beautifully into your third point. So as a clinician, how do we actually classify someone with frailty? Uh, that's a really good question um, because there's many, many frailty screening instruments out there in the literature. 
Um, and the gold standard for assessing frailty, if we're to look at this, of you know how how we've uh, managed to get to the point of having frailty screening instruments, is actually something called a comprehensive geriatric assessment, which is uh, led by a geriatrician, a specialist doctor who specialises in the older adult. Um, and usually a multidisciplinary team who do a variety of assessments and tests. They take into account things like um, comorbidities, the med medications that you're on, your functional status and how strong you might be in doing various tasks, um, and your emotional status and your nutritional status, uh, and as well as the presence of geriatric syndrome, such as urinary incontinence, falls, again, your cognition... They bundle all that together and make a determination as to whether someone's frail. That's not a practical way of screening someone or knowing if someone's technically, you know, frail. So, not, not unless we had geriatricians on every ward and yeah. triage and in, in the emergency day. department, yeah, and about three weeks for every person. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. Know, so not practical at all. So what they've done over time is try to condense that down to a very rapid, uh, you know, eyeball approach to a two, two or three minute uh, glance into someone to see whether they can, they are considered to be frail. And of course, then they've measured it against the comprehensive geriatric assessment. So we have a variety of screening instruments out there in the literature. The one that has been adopted by Queensland Health and that's quite a common instrument in the literature is the Clinical Frailty Scale, the CFS. And I mentioned earlier that uh, there's a pictorial diagram that goes with CFS, so it's relatively easy for someone to understand and to comprehend uh, what someone's frailty status may be. It's also had quite a lot of a big volume of uh, research behind it as well in every number of settings you can imagine, community, ED, inpatient with all sorts of population types, and it seems to be quite a valid instrument. So that's the one we're using at the moment in Queensland Health. And so how long would it take, you know, you said it's a two to three minutes, got a, a, a diagram, you know, is is that actually what it takes? No, not yeah. for the clinical <laughs> frailty scale. It's probably uh, five seconds, <laughs> to yeah. be honest. But it probably takes just a little bit more than that in terms of knowing, uh, you know, the person's background. So you, it's very hard for someone just to walk through the door and think, oh, well, they're probably a four or a five. Mm. It's knowing a little bit too about what they need help to do. So whether they uh, whether whether they get short of breath with their symptoms, for example, or you know whether they need help to conduct their activities of daily living, or their you know even help to do their basic things, basic cares like going to the toilet or having a shower. So it, sometimes you might need to just go beyond the visual um, to sort of get an accurate um, representation of where they're at. But but the visual component of it is the is the funneling into that screening instrument isn't it that's right so it's not like every 65 well well there's there's age um age triggers to apply that instrument isn't there but also there's your kind of visual um rough screen to actually funnel someone who might not be of that age but appears to have some functional deficit um into that screening that's correct yeah. yes so someone might look quite debilitated but actually be quite functional yeah. you know and so uh, that's that's why it might take a couple of extra questions it's wrong just to jump to a conclusion before you sort of do just a few extra little questions to clarify yeah. and and age isn't everything like I know we still have some very intelligent highly functioned doctors and nurses still working in this hospital 
who are in their late 60s and 70s. Age is but a number. Yeah. That's what they say. <laughs> Again, you've you've segued beautifully into your own um, signposting around this because your number four is can frailty be prevented? And this is what I'm really curious about. Like how much of this… At your age, you should be. Oh, <laughs> Jesse Spurs going to so cop naughty. it after that. But like can this actually be prevented? Like should we, you know… Should we be taking care of ourselves now in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever, in preparation for old age? So the good news is, yes, to some extent, Mm -hmm. we can look to prevent frailty, but there is a bit of a diminishing return, I suppose, when you get to a certain point because uh, it's very hard sometimes to regain some some aspects. I hate to use it, it's a bit of a blunt term, but it's almost a slippery slope at some at some point. However, um, so as I've uh, mentioned, there's things like, um, you know, um, loss of muscle and becoming tired and weak. So I guess one of the key things is exercise, you know, to maintain regular exercise every day as much as you can um, when you, especially I suppose in retirement, when you're beyond say the age of 60 is to, if you lose it, sorry, if you don't use it, you You lose lose it. it. A very important message to to bring home. Um, So they actually also recommend not just uh, walking but using a weight. So if you've got, you know, to use those core groups of muscles um, so that's number one is exercise. Number two is um, a balanced diet. So it comes back to – and I'm going to go back to Alison Mudge's Eat, Walk and Engage here, which is what we're trying to do on the wards. But it's the uh, walking and it's the eating. So a good balanced nutrition at home as well as in hospital, getting all the nutrients you possibly can. So that's something you can very easily control yourself. Um, and as best you can, number three – uh, is the prevention of um, socioeconomic and environmental factors that can contribute to poor outcomes. So, you know, engaging with people. So don't remain sort of socially isolated in your age at home uh, because that also helps with your cognition as well. So that's something that you can certainly reverse. They do talk about the socioeconomic side of things as well, but that might be something that's quite hard for some people to control, but as best they can plan for the future and make sure you've got something there that's going to sustain you in your later years, I guess. And lastly, uh, if you are diagnosed with frailty, uh, you can seek the help or direction of a multidisciplinary team to address that because frailty is not just really a single physician that might be involved, it's multidisciplinary. And what I mean by that is physios or occupational therapists to help uh, you know, invigorate all aspects of your being to keep you well and happy. That's a really important point because it's all well and good for us to say do some exercise, but then there's going to be needed adaptations that might be well outside the bounds of someone being able to figure out what's the right thing for their body in those cases as well. So in a normal state, in a pre-frail state or a fully functional state, it's all well and good for us to go do some exercise and it's all well and good for us to say have a balanced diet, but there's a dependence on some knowledge and also ability to adapt with functional decline in that space and with appetite decline. Like, so we start to come into, we may need to supplement um, some of our macronutrients and micronutrients in our diet as we get older. And so 
yeah, that that point I think is super, super important for us to hang on. And sometimes we are that <laughs> part of that multidisciplinary team by proxy when a frail older person particularly comes into hospital. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's very multifaceted and sometimes quite complicated because let's take the scenario of someone's lost their licence. Um, and that's very common and happens quite a lot. Instantly there's problems around transport, getting to the shops, buying the food, accessing and then affording it. So if someone's on a single age pension, for example, and they might be renting, then to buy all those that good nutrition and maintain all of these things that I'm talking about, it's expensive and it's difficult sometimes and you have to have the wherewithal to be able to find these resources. So it's uh, it can be quite a difficult thing to maintain if uh, sometimes if you don't have the support or you don't know the directions to turn to. And, you know, I guess that really kind of the fourth thing you, that you don't mention because, of course, it, there's such a variability and opportunity, but it's finances, isn't it? Because I go to yoga and some of the women in there, like, are so strong. <laughs> They're in their 70s, but you still have to be able to afford a yoga membership. Absolutely. That's right. It's, uh, it's very multifaceted and it's not a one-size-fits-all because we're all such a diverse group. Um, and I think that's a very big take-home message is, you know, older people are not a big – they're not homogenous. Mm. They're, they're actually very diverse with lots of different needs and lots of different things going on. So an interesting group. That's why I love <laughs> studying them and being involved with them because they're so interesting. And look, you know, if you're in your 20s, you can kind of have this mindset. I know I had it in my 20s like as if superannuations, you know, as if I need to be starting to save now – when I'm 80, I've got so much time or as if I, you know, like I can get really healthy once I get a bit older and more mature, I can worry about, but before you know it, it's kind of here, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. snapping at your heels. So how do you invest in yourself now to take yourself into the future? Or if you've got grandparents or parents, how can you be looking at them, where they live, their level of engagement, their level of an ex- exercise and how do you encourage that to kind of ward off frailty as long as you possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just great to be involved in your the older people in your lives, just to check in on them and make sure that they're well connected and got all those things, you know, at their disposal so that they can and, and I suppose a bit of education as well thrown in because some people aren't so aware that if they don't use it, they'll lose it. Mm. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but um, it's so important to try and keep people active. Yeah. Great. Okay, so your number five is what is the role of the nurse in caring for someone who's actually frail? Well, actually, yes, and this is a very big question that's asked frequently and um, when the frailty scale was rolled out uh, to Queensland Health, this question came up a lot around, you know, so what, it's a frailty scale it's a score and what do I do about that? But actually nurses play a really big pivotal role in, in frailty and we've already been talking a little bit about their role through the answers, um, you know, to date but uh, it's things like ensuring people uh, um, get out of bed and they're mobile on the ward and they're not languishing in a bed for, you know, your whole shift. Um, you know, I think uh, I think we are turning the tide in that, in that space a fair bit. You know, we recognise now that it's not the right thing, for example, to leave people in in staying in bed all, all day long. And certainly here with our Eat, Walk and Engage program, we've, we've recognised that and we're trying to keep people out and engaged as much as possible throughout, throughout the day. So that's a really key factor is um, to encourage that with your patients. 
Um, so uh, next thing is with the nutrition, ensuring that their the patients, you know, their their meal tray, for example, is not over the other side of the room uh, when it's delivered to them. That it's accessible. And taking a bit of a note, a mental note of how much they are in fact consuming and making sure that they're, they're getting their adequate share um, of their food intake. And perhaps if they're not, uh, it might be your role to escalate that to um, a dietitian or just making sure the medical team are aware that they've lost their appetite and they're not perhaps consuming as much as they could. Um, just back on the pressure in, uh, sorry, back on the walking, I'd like to say that that's part of their pressure injury prevention as well. So as nurses, that very much sits in our forte as well, just while they're up, having a good look at their skin to make sure that it's intact. Um, and providing some um, cognitive stimulation too on, on the wards, I think that sits very much um, within the nurses' remit as well. It's uh, even though in the, your busy day you might be dashing around and doing a hundred things all at once and your list is forever long, but just talking to people too, having some – find out what your older person or your frailer person did for a living is a great conversation starter and ask what they um, did before they retired. And it, and you'd be surprised uh, to hear what some <laughs> some of the professions were um, if you've got an older adult over 85 and hearing some of the older professions that were out there back in the day. Um, but that's a great way to engage with people and, um, and perhaps relatives that come in can bring some photos or memoirs to help with conversations as well. And uh, the last thing is, as I've just touched on it now, is engaging with caregivers that come in um, because often some people with um, some cognitive impairment, you know, and even people without cognitive impairment, let's face it, um, hospitals are great at sleep deprivation. Oh my gosh, off the Richter scale. <laughs> Anyone that's had a hospital stay will know how debilitating that can be. And so anything that is, you know, they're sh having conversations about their care and instructions for when they go home, it's not surprising to hear that um, people don't remember those things. They get home and they clean forget about what the doctor said and what tablets they shouldn't, shouldn't be taking and when should I go and see my GP and what blood tests they need to have. And so that's the role of the caregiver really to step in as best they can to um, be that brain, I suppose, <laughs> behind the scenes remembering and collating all that information just to be the safety net for when they go home. So there is big role for the nurse in frailty. It's recognising that and wrapping a few extra little precautions around them to, to make sure they're not the population group that are perhaps lingering in hospital longer than they need to be. And and again, you know, understanding discharge instructions, it may very well be the thing that prevents them from turning up to the emergency department in the next week because they've clean forgot what to do next. Mm. Right. I think there's kind of three companion episodes that have jumped into my mind there. So most recent one is the nutrition episode with Dr. Adrian Young, um, a delirium episode with Margaret Cahill, and uh, the third being actually infection um, management and prevention uh, with Michelle Doidge, I think are all quite relevant ones about us preventing secondary harms on top of frailty. Yeah. Mm. You know, it's um, when you're pulling this all together, you know, like I was reflecting on how every single episode, everything we talk about <laughs> comes back to the, you know, the poor old bedside nurse about checking this, checking that, but they're all interrelated, aren't they? Good nursing care is a good assessment, is checking skin integrity, being aware of nutrition, encouraging people to get up, be mobile, engaging with other patients, having visitors, you know, like... 
they it's all woven together and frailty is I don't know the way I'm sort of thinking of it it's it's like almost one of the end points of if if we fail on all those other things that's another risk factor absolutely that's so true um and I think I, I've probably said this I've talked about what is frailty I, I should probably to reflect back on that now it's I think a lot of bedside nurses we've uh, we've got other systems of categorizing our workload but we often refer to I think uh, frail patients as um, it, we use other colloquialisms to describe them things like um, heavy um, or to assist and that's come across I think really by some of our rostering programs that, you know, trend care and the likes that actually designate nursing hours according to someone's dependence. But that's sort of in our nursing brain how in our mind we've we've categorised someone as a, a heavy or a, a requiring uh, to assist for things. But that's actually we're describing, could be potentially describing a frail patient. Mm. Uh, it's probably a language change that we need to make at some point and start describing them in a more... Um, subjective way rather than objective. I meant to ask you this a couple of points ago, but can you just die of frailty? Well, it's it's a cascade, mm. I suppose. So we would never say that someone dies of frailty specifically, but it's of probably one of the syndromes that's been part of that. Yeah. So let's take a fall, and the fall might be because of a urinary tract infection, which might be because of urinary incontinence, and then the fall might lead to a broken bone, which might lead to some delirium, uh, you know, and the and the ability to recover from all of that um, is much, much diminished. So it may not be one specific thing. It's normally a combination of all of those things wrapped together and your ability to recover. As we enter into this demographic across the world of a much more ageing population, it's really important for all of us to kind of um, I think take stock and think about, you know, older people in our community built our community, you know, particularly in a young country like Australia, you know, they, that what has this person's role been and what significance histories and moments in time and what was their contribution rather than just here's a little old person, you know, who is this person and what have they got to say? Um, right, I'm going to have a go at summarising this for our listeners. So your number one is what is frailty and you gave us a lovely definition and you said there's two common approaches. One is the phenotypic approach and the other is the deficit accumulation approach with the phenotypic approach basically being around a biological syndrome whereas the deficit accumulation approach sees frailty as a multidimensional risk state. But I think the big take home is, is that when something happens you don't recover and it tends to happen. It doesn't have to be chronological, but it tends to happen as we age. Number two is what does frailty look like? Um, and you mentioned this unintentional weight loss, usually followed, you know, because people have literally lost their appetite, exhaustion, weakness, uh, where people have really lost that body mass, um, muscle tone, etc. Um, and that there are some socioeconomic factors that really increase vulnerability around this, and that is like social isolation, poverty, um, and people who are homeless. Number three is, as a clinician, how do we classify someone as frail? And you said there's multiple uh, frailty scales with the comprehensive geriatric assessment sort of being the gold standard. However, this is a multidisciplinary team approach led by a geriatrician so that 
of all the scales, a lot of what's used in Queensland Health will be the Clinical Frailty Scale or the CFS um, and that that can be done relatively quickly and it has a diagram attached to it and a lot of that is visuals but it's really worth asking a few key questions so that we really understand who this person is and uh, what might be the risk factors for them. Number four is can frailty be prevented and you gave us some, you know, really the basics. We're going back to the basics. Make sure that you exercise and it may not just be walking. We've got to think about our muscle mass and maybe doing some weights. If you don't use it, you lose it. Um, and that we need to look at a, having a balanced diet. Look at those socioeconomic uh, and environmental factors. Like are we still are the people that we love or as we age, are we still socialising, getting out, getting out and, and about and that there's some real risk factors around that and I love that you pointed out, you know, someone losing their licence can really shrink their world and start to have a real risk factor around this. But if anything is happening, if you're concerned for your patients or you're concerned for someone in your family, you need to seek um, the whole multidisciplinary team approach about how you can help people, you know, prevent further frailty. Number five is what is the role of the nurse in caring for someone who is frail? And it's going back to those absolutely core things around assessment and intervention with your patient. So is your patient mobile? Are you helping them to get up out of bed? Are you encouraging them to eat for themselves? Are you checking what their nutrition is? Uh, how much food they're consuming? Are you checking in with their home team around that? Monitoring things like pressure injuries, cognitive stimulation, encouraging if they are able to have visitors, uh, that kind of contact and, and engagement and overall, all of these things will help. How did I go? Great. <laughs> You're a great student. <laughs> <laughs> you know, thank you very much, Dr. Andrea Taylor, for joining us today on Five Things. Welcome. Thanks for having me. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at Liz Crow 2 and for me it's inject underscore orange we would absolutely love to hear your thoughts ideas or feedback thanks for listening to five things 